Amen. Thanks for that word, Jason. Well, we are in a second sermon of four. This is kind of a mini-series in our larger series on pleasing God. We're looking at the four New Testament phrases, this is the will of God. I mentioned last week that there are four times in the New Testament where the apostle or Jesus says, this is the will of God. And so we looked at last week that it's the will of God that we be saved by Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to look at that the will of God is that we be sanctified for Christ, especially in the area of sexual purity. So I'm glad Jason said what he said because we need to talk about both this morning. We need to talk about both the culture in which we live, which reinforces the temptation of sexual immorality and gives us free reign in that area, and also our own hidden sin. So we're in the midst of a vast cultural revolution around us and around the issues of human sexuality. You'd have to have your head under a pillow and be living under a rock uh, to not notice that. From the inauguration of contraception that severed the relationship between sex and procreation to no-fault divorce, which downgraded the lifelong covenant of marriage to a contract, to the legalization of abortion on demand in 1973, which separated pregnancy from responsibility, to the legalization of same-sex marriage, which enshrined within the moral DNA of our culture, not only the acceptance, but also the normalization and celebration of what God forbids, to now the LGBTQ revolution with the latest efforts regarding transgenderism, which is overturning the very ontological realities of gender, and demanding society overcome the antiquated, outmoded labels of male and female, which are representative of a bygone, oppressive era, also known as all of human history. Living, much less articulating a vision of sexuality, is more important and more difficult than it has been in recent memory. Which is why it's all the more important that we do so. When societies reject the natural creational order that God has put in place, confusion and chaos will follow. Either we engage in active revolution against God, or we hold fast to that antiquated revelation in God's Word and in Jesus Christ. We're not merely opposed to sexual immorality in all its forms because we believe it's contrary to Scripture, although we do believe that, but because we love our neighbors... And because we recognize that anything that's opposed to Scripture can't lead to human flourishing. God made us in His image, and He invented gender, and He invented sex, and these are ideas that He intends for us to use in God-glorifying, life-giving ways. So, in response to this revolution, before we get into 1 Thessalonians 4, brothers and sisters, I just want to remind us that as Christians... We have to be prepared to do two things in this moment. Number one, we have to be prepared to speak the true liberty that the gospel offers in the face of false promises of erotic liberty. We've got to be willing to do it and take the heat that comes for it. And at the same time, we have to stand ready to receive, as the church, the broken refugees of the sexual revolution. They will come in droves in months, years, and decades to come because the sexual revolution can't deliver on its promises. First, we preach true liberty. To do that, we're going to stand against the world for the benefit of the world. 
Day after day, minute by minute, an increasingly secularized America is demanding that churches make accommodations by abandoning a biblical sexual ethic. And to refuse to do that is tantamount to enacting new Jim Crow laws. However, we are not so much concerned with being on the right side of history as we are concerned about having the divine verdict of eternity. In so doing, we love the souls of our neighbors. In pursuit of individual sexual freedom and expression, the outcome will be continued bondage. Bondage to the culture. Since we know that the sexual revolution can't fulfill its promises despite the intense propaganda campaign, this revolution will leave many people hurt and left, let down or even worse in its wake. And that the church of Jesus Christ and our church must be ready to receive people with grace, with love, and with tender compassion. Here's what Al Mohler says about this moment and the way the church is called to respond. He says, quote, Regrettably, the church has often ostracized many in our culture with harmful rhetoric or nauseating self-righteousness. But our call is neither to surrender to unbelief nor a hardened heart. No, we must meet revolution with revelation, and we embody revelation with the real lives of love. End quote. So God has not left us to figure out sexuality on our own, and we embody revelation with lives of love as we are given in God's word instruction on how we are to live in this moment and all of our moments. Listen, brothers and sisters, if God hadn't spoken, we wouldn't have anything to say. But God has spoken, and so must we, because everything that God reveals is for our good, including the hard words that he gives us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Unless we just think, as our brother Jason re reminded us, that we just think this is a cultural problem, no, this is a heritage problem. We have pornography addiction in here. We have people who are flirting, perhaps maybe have committed uh, adultery against their spouse. Um, we have other sexual sin that we're not aware of. And so let's not think that this is a problem out there. No, this is a problem in here. It's a problem in the human heart, and God has given us words for how to respond to that in our lives. So we're going to look at four points this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And I want us to be encouraged and instructed from the, this passage this morning. It's a hard word but it's a necessary word. Look at verse 1 first, where Paul says, Finally then, brothers, so he's talking to us as Christians, he says, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, that's what this summer's about, right? Learning what it means to walk and please God. He says, Just as you are doing, that, but that you will do so more and more. So I love how Paul begins this word of exhortation. He doesn't start by saying, listen, I know you're a bunch of sexual sinners who need to get busy repenting. No, he acknowledges, you're brothers in Christ, you're sisters in Christ, you desire to follow the Lord, you are following the Lord. And now we are urging you and encouraging you, just as you're trying to walk and please God, that you do it more and more and more, and especially in this area of sexual purity. It says in verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, there's the phrase, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. So that's why we're preaching on this text this morning, because it, it weaves in pleasing God, that's verse 1, with the will of God, verse 3. The title of this sermon series is What God Wants, Pleasing God by Doing His Will or by Pursuing His Will. So we're thinking about how we please God. And one of the ways we please God is by looking at the specific texts in Scripture that describe what His will is. And this is one of them. And we're going to talk about what it means to be sanctified for Christ this morning in the context of our sexual lives. So, number one, here's four reasons why the will of God is your sanctification, and especially in terms of sexual morality. So number one, sexual immorality distorts the plan of God. Sexual immorality distorts the plan of God. We see this in verses 4 and 5 where Paul says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now there is some debate over verse 4 and what it means. Is it referring to a body or is it referring to a wife? And the ESV's done our homework for us because it translates the word wife. But there are other translate or sorry, body. But there are other translations that translate the word for body as actually wife. And you'll, if you have an ESV in front of you, you'll see, you'll see a footnote that it can also be translated wife or vessel. Those who see it as body, which I do, I think the ESV is right. See it as a parallel of 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, those who see it as wife see a parallel with 1 Corinthians 7.2 and 1 Peter 3.7. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.2, because of temptation to immorality, the same word as verse 3 in our text, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. They think the words each man have his own wife in 1 Corinthians 7.2 mean basically the same as the words each one should know how to take his own vessel in holiness and honor in our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And another reason that's given is that the context is similar to 1 Peter 3, 7, where vessel there is used to refer to the wife, not a man's body. The wife, as 1 Peter says, being the weaker vessel. So the point is, you know, which is it? Well, I'm sympathetic to body, but if the application is virtually the same, whether you see it as body, vessel, or wife, the plan of God is that we should control our body and acquire our spouses in ways that are honorable and holy, distinct from the unbelieving and ungodly world that doesn't know God. So Paul is saying that to not engage in sexual morality according to the Bible and the Bible's sexual ethic is to distort the plan of God. Well, what is the plan of God? Paul tells us what this holy way is. He basically says, control your body, Pursue your wife or your husband like someone who knows God. That's his argument. In other words, knowing God should transform the way we fall in love and get engaged and get married and stay married and the way we relate sexually in marriage as well. Sexual passion is real. God created it. Marriage is God's appointed place for its consummation. 
but the reality of God in our life should utterly transform the way we satisfy our passions. That is God's plan. Now, in our culture, when it comes to sexuality, many believe that where we find ourselves in our cultural moment is somehow the culmination of history and the apex of human progress. We have cast off all the archaic notions of the past and we finally arrived. But brothers and sisters, this is a myth. What we believe and celebrate and practice in our culture now is nothing but an ethical regression to older times, not advanced progression to newer times. Ancient Rome was an extremely promiscuous context of unfettered sexual expression. Rome would make the America of today blush. And into that context came this weird worldview called Christianity. Nothing was more countercultural to the Roman world than that. So what we are seeing in America today is not progress. It's regress. It's a return to the sexual disarray of paganism. Don't let anybody tell you different. It's all the ancient paganism before the Christian revolution took place. Let's not pretend it's otherwise. It's not progress. It's regress. It's exchanging the creator for the creation and committing idolatry of the human body and exalting ourselves as gods, which is as old as Romans 1. So that's why sexual immorality is important to know and understand because it distorts, first of all, the plan of God. Secondly, sexual immorality defrauds the people of God. Sexual immorality defrauds the people of God. Look at verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now I want you to look back, you're, you're probably on the same page in your Bible, and to 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13. They're the verses that come right before our passage this morning. And Paul says there, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men, as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God. Now, if abounding in love is the means by which our hearts are established in holiness, then love must be the thing Paul has in mind when he exhorts us to make progress in holiness here in verse 6. The specific application of love in view here, in verse 6, is abstaining from sexual immorality. Abounding in love toward each other is incompatible with sexual promiscuity. Now that sounds so bizarre in our culture, but that's the way Paul thinks. That's the way the Holy Spirit thinks. Verse 6 makes this an issue of holiness, and it makes it clearly an issue of love. He says, we, we behave in sexually moral ways according to a biblical sexual ethic so that we don't transgress or sin against our brothers and sisters. In other words, not only is immorality an offense against the knowledge of God, as we saw in verses 4 and 5, it's an offense against the love of our brothers and sisters in verse 6. It's a violation of both sides of the great commandment. It fails to love God and it fails to love neighbor. Paul's response says, if you knew God, you wouldn't do that. If you knew God, you wouldn't do that. And if you loved people, you wouldn't do that. 
If you loved your brother and sister in Christ, you wouldn't do that. When we sin sexually, we're taking something that doesn't belong to us and robbing someone's future or current spouse. Sexual immorality is social injustice, even when it's consensual. When we sin sexually, we're not seeking the highest good of other people. Neither the woman nor the man we sin with, nor the person we fantasize about, nor the person in the pornography, nor the spouse or parent of any of these. If it's not Christian loves that moves us in any of this, it's simply selfish, sinful desire. That's it. But Christians are people who are to be deeply moved by love for God and others. Christians love people. We don't use them. Exploitation and manipulation has no place in Christ's church. Therefore, to say to another person, I want you to satisfy my sexual desire, but I don't want you as a covenant partner in marriage, basically means I want to use you for your body, for my own pleasure, but I don't care about you as a whole person at all. And I don't want you as a whole person. And that's dishonoring, and it's lustful, and lust is sexual desire that's minus a commitment to honor other people. Tim Keller reflects on why sex before marriage is wrong and unwise. And he says the following. The modern sexual revolution finds the idea of abstinence till marriage to be so unrealistic as to be ludicrous. In fact, many people believe it to be psychologically unhealthy and harmful. Yet the Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty one. The, bi- the biblical view implies that marriage, sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but also personally harmful. If sex is designed to be part of making a covenant and experiencing the covenant's renewal, then we should think of sex as an emotional emotional commitment apparatus. If sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Even if you're not legally married, you may find yourself quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you. But that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility to even call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of the feeling of having somehow connected themselves. Therefore, if you have sex outside of marriage, you'll have to steel yourself against sex power to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that eventually sex will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if you one day do get married. Ironically, then sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person, end quote. It's a long one, but a good one. Then, in the latter half of verse 6, Paul shoots his rifle over our heads. As if to say, brothers, I'm not kidding. This is serious. The Lord is an avenger in all these things as I solemnly warned you. Paul's not speaking here of a fatherly swat on the behind. He's saying that if these professing Christians in Thessalonica 
continue to act as those who don't know God and don't love their brothers and sisters in Christ, then the Lord will condemn them, condemn them along with the unbelievers that they are. The parallel of 2 Thessalonians 1.8 is clear. There Paul says the Lord is going to come with his angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God. So brothers and sisters, here's a fight in our sexual purity. This is ammo for us. This is, this is bullets for our gun. We, we say to ourselves, I don't want to behave like somebody who doesn't know God. I don't want to behave like somebody who doesn't love others. So I'm not going to do that. You see how that... That, because if I give myself repeatedly and unrepentantly to this, I'm going to be revealing I don't know God. And I'm going to be revealing I don't love brothers, which is, I'm not a Christian. So we prove that we're a Christian by faith working through love. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians 5, 6? Nothing counts but faith working through love. How do we know if faith's real? It's working through love. It's loving people. It's loving God. So that's how we do it. Now I'll say a word to all of us with sensitive consciences near the end, so lest you think that if you sin sexually, you're out of the kingdom. That's not true. Paul repeatedly warns professing Christians that if they live according to the flesh, they will die, Romans 8. The reason, Paul says repeatedly, is not only because you can read it again and again in his letters, but because he says it right here in verse 6 that he's warned them like this before. Paul's been to Thessalonica, and he's seen what things are like. And he told them there, and he's telling them now that they have got to learn to behave in terms of their sanctification and their sexual immorality in ways that are pleasing and that reveal that they know God and that they love their brothers and sisters. He warns the same church in Second Thessalonians, his very next letter, about the vengeance that will come if they don't. But in our culture, this all sounds so judgmental, doesn't it? I mean, the Paul being this apostle, you know, coming down hard on this church and being judgmental. But, brothers and sisters, I want to turn the tables a little bit and say that our Western culture in its present moment is far more judgmental and intolerant to, regarding sexual immorality than Paul ever was. Say, prove it to me. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> our Western culture would like you to think that our current sexual revolution is embracing diversity. Right? Isn't that what they say? You be you. You love who you want to love. But if you considered that this whole ethic and this whole idea was born out of white elite academia, okay? This is where this is coming from. White elite academic, academic Western revolution that's being passed down through the various forms of culture and, and art and, and media. But do these Western academic elites not understand or realize that the vast majority of people and cultures on this planet subscribe to a different sexual ethic than we do? Do Westerners not understand that most of the world looks at our gender discussion and thinks we've lost our collective minds? Do Westerners not see the oppressive arrogance of claiming that the last few decades of our history should radically overturn centuries-old views of sex and gender as now the one true sexual ethic? Brothers and sisters, that is the height of judgmentalism. That is saying our limited 10-year experiment here should now be the worldwide approved and celebrated view. That is the height of arrogance. 
There's no humility in that whatsoever. And so how dare Western culture say to any part of the world that you're being judgmental? They're being judgmental way more than anybody ever was by saying that the whole world must embrace this. Number three, sexual immorality destroys the purpose of God. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us, this is his purpose, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He's not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So in other words, the purpose of our salvation, the purpose of our call is to live holy lives. So God's mission in the world is to save a people, right? And then sanctify those people. Christ died, according to 2 Corinthians 5.15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who was for their sake died and rose again. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that we might be presented to Christ without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we would be holy and without blemish. And then Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So let's just be clear. We are not saved by being holy. Okay? We are saved in order to be holy. And the way that we evidence our salvation is a pursuit, not a perfect arrival at, a pursuit of holiness. Now J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite writers, should read everything he's written, um, that's I'm, mostly, okay? Stay away from the stuff on infant baptism. But everything else, you should basically read. The Bishop of Liverpool from the 19th century was right when he said, we must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power, end quote. My fear is that as we rightly celebrate and in some quarters rediscover all that Christ has saved us from, that we'll give little thought and make little effort concerning what Christ has saved us to. We have to hold both parts. We have to hold justification and sanctification. We can't in all of our efforts to uphold and preserve and preach the doctrine of justification that we forget that justification has an end that it's trying to accomplish, namely sanctification. That Christ has saved us from God's wrath in order to save us to a pursuit of God's holiness. But holiness, friends, is falling on some hard times. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, comments on the fact that holiness has fallen on hard times when he says, I find it telling that you can find plenty of young Christians today who are really excited about justice and serving in their communities. You can find Christians fired up about evangelism. You can find believers passionate about precise theology. Yes and amen to all that, but where are the Christians known for their zeal for holiness? Come back to the quote. But young people, don't be fooled. It's easy to get fired up, and we should get fired up about bless the block. But if you go home and you look at pornography on your computer, don't think that God is not seeing that. Don't think that, well, I did this externally good and righteous thing, but now I'm going to go pursue some sin. We have to be whole Christians, people. Whole Christians. Not externally righteous when the moment counts, but when it's not counting 
were unrighteous. De Young continues, When is the last time we took a verse like Ephesians 5.4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. When's the last time we took a verse like this and even began to try to apply it to our conversation, to our joking, our movies, our YouTube clips, our TV, our commercial intake? The fact of the matter is if you read through the New Testament epistles, you'll find very few explicit commands that tell us to evangelize and very few commands few explicit commands that tell us to take care of the poor in our communities, although we should do all those things. But there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of verses in the New Testament that enjoin us in one way or, to, or another to be holy as God is holy, end quote. So, young people, I love your generation. I do. I love the zeal to change the world, and I love the zeal to make a difference for Christ, and I love the zeal to... To, to push back against darkness and injustice and, and expose the darkness to the light and press in. I love all that about it. But listen, you can't change the world if you've got poor character. Do not talk to me about your passion to eliminate sex trafficking if you view pornography, which is perpetuating it. Righteous actions don't change the world Righteous people do. Righteous people doing righteous actions is what leaves a mark, not unrighteous people doing righteous actions. Do you know what mark unrighteous people doing righteous actions leaves? A hypocritical bad taste in people's mouths, which is making situations far worse and not better. Number four, and finally, sexual immorality denies the presence of God. Sexual immorality denies the presence of God. Verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He says if, to the Thessalonians, if you're not listening to this, if you don't want to listen to what I have to say, just realize you're not disregarding me as an apostle. You're disregarding God. And you're disregarding the one who has given his Holy Spirit to you. Verse 1 and 2 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul is bringing the authority of Jesus to bear on these commands. He's saying, look, you're not just rejecting me. You're rejecting the Holy Spirit. You're rejecting Jesus. You're rejecting God the Father. I'm urging you in the Lord Jesus. I'm giving you these instructions through the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit was given to you. God says these things, meaning God the Father. He says, so if you won't listen to these things, you're stiff-arming the whole trinity. In verse 1, he exhorts them in the Lord Jesus. He does the same in verse 2. He wants very much for the Thessalonians to hear his instructions as more than the words of a mere man. He wants them to keep on hearing the way they did when they first heard the gospel, which was... According to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's the way he wants them to receive this instruction too, the way they originally heard it that he recounts in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. God's word and spirit call us to holiness, and if we reject this word and the promptings of the spirit, then we reject God. They received the commandments of the Lord Jesus once, that is these Thessalonians, as the very word of God. And now he reminds them to press on in those commitments. 
When Paul did his missionary work, he not only won converts and baptized, he also followed the mandate of the Great Commission to teach them to observe whatsoever the Lord Jesus had commanded. And so when Paul delivers instructions to the believers through the Lord Jesus, what he is saying is the very will and word of God to them. God's word and God's will are in these instructions, and his will for believers is their sanctification. So that concludes the exposition, laying out the four aspects of this passage, verses 4 through 8, where sexual immorality distorts the plan of God, defrauds the people of God, destroys the purpose of God, and denies the presence of God. Let me leave us in the next five or so minutes with five words of application. Okay. Number one, you know, try to address us all. I know that it's hard to preach on things like this because so often it requires some very specific pastoral counsel, but I'm going to do it, give it the best shot I can. Number one, if you're unmarried, younger people or older people, and you've never engaged in sexual immorality, please don't think you're missing out. Okay? Don't think you're missing out. You're, the culture will tell you you're missing out. You're not missing out. Ask people who are married. Just ask people. Ask people, am I missing out? Now, I probably don't want to ask that until you're close to being married. But, you know, but you're not missing out, okay? Your purity and your pursuit of holiness is preparing you for the greater enjoyment of God's gift of sexuality and marriage, not the lessening of it. You will enjoy it more for having obeyed God now, and you won't carry in the skeletons into the bedroom that can be forgiven and can be cleansed through the blood and righteousness of Christ. Praise God. And you can enjoy the Eden-like being naked and not ashamed, even if your past is marked by shame, because that's what the gospel does. Okay, but that's no reason to move on and embrace sin anyway. Application number two. If you're unmarried or married and contemplating indulging in sexual immorality, don't. For the sake of your soul, don't. You need to hear Paul's words here. I solemnly charge you to do this. Look, the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. If you're flirting with sexual immorality or you think it's not a big deal, God's word contradicts your assessment. And we encourage you to take it deadly seriously. Jesus says to get so serious as to pluck out the right eye and cut off the right hand. Not, not of course, physically doing that. That doesn't solve the problem. You've still got the left hand and left eye. But the point is, take the battle that seriously. It's not a game. This is life and death, heaven and hell we're talking about. Number three, if you're unmarried or unmarried and are currently engaging in sexual immorality with no regard for eternity, repent. Repent. Turn from your sin and seek the Lord's forgiveness and seek his grace to resist. Now, there are a lot of common arguments that get thrown around, and, and, and I've even heard them in Christians' mouths before. Let me give you three of them quickly. Here's some arguments from our culture that can often fall um, into the minds and hearts of believers as well. Number one, if it feels right and nobody gets hurt, what's the big deal? Well, let me answer that. Paul tells the Corinthians that uniting one's body with a prostitute does violence to the souls of both parties, 1 Corinthians 6. Sex like fire is life-giving, but only within boundaries. Let it go uncontained, and wildfire erupts and then burns and then permanently scars. 
Does sex feel good outside of marriage? Of course, in the same way that cocaine feels good. And the ring of power felt good to Tolkien's Gollum. Scripture is a safeguard. Surrendering our feelings and our instincts to biblical truth will always protect us from the unforeseen wounds and dehumanizing consequences of sin. Number two, but we're committed to each other. We're committed to each other. That's what I hear most from sexually active, unmarried, professing Christians. Thankfully, not as much in our church, but just people I've interacted with who are living in uh, a church a sexual relationship, either living together or unmarried. They feel married to each other because they are in a monogamous, committed relationship. And because their relationship is exclusive, marriage norms like sex and living together feel like the sensible way to deepen and solidify their relationship. But why would anyone feel the need to solidify a relationship with someone they're not sure they'll marry? Will they be glad about having solidified that relationship of sex if, it come, if that relationship comes to an end? Will they feel good about sharing the details of their current arrangement with a future spouse? Will they feel good about looking the one in the eye and telling them how they gave their body and soul to others? I was reminded early on in my Christian life in college um, that I had a disciple leader sit me down and put his finger in my chest and say, listen, brother, you're probably... Um, going to be seeing a lot of your friends right now who are in your discipleship group marrying your other friends. And you want to be able to sit on the front row of that wedding. And that was very real because, because at the time, at the moment, I was contemplating a relationship with a girl. Now, there was no, no way of knowing it would have gotten physical or not, but I was contemplating a relationship with someone who married my disciple leader. Imagine if that would have resulted in sin. What would our relationship be like now? We couldn't cheer on each other's families from Facebook and say, keep going after the Lord and pursuing the Lord. Now, maybe grace would redeem all that, but I'm so thankful that God preserved that from happening by having a wise counselor come and say, brother, you need to be able to sit on the front row of every single one of these guys' weddings. And girls, you need to do the same. Number three, but we're engaged to be married. Wise and faithful Christians will wait until they're inside the covenant before they start enjoying the benefits of the covenant. Until then, they're just playing house. Marriage is where the real action is. <laughs> Say, that's, that's, that's child's play. Get married. Remember Joseph? He didn't know Mary during their betrothal, their engagement period. Statistically, couples who are chased during engagement are much less likely to divorce or be unfaithful than couples who are not. Engagement is an opportunity for a couple to build a history of self-control and trust to prepare them for seasons of temptation that will occur when they are married. But brothers and sisters, if we can't control our bodies outside the covenant, do you have any realistic hope that your future spouse will control it inside the covenant? What hope do you have? if they have shown you that they will commit it outside the covenant. So we do it to preserve each other's integrity and to foster biblical self-control with each other. Two more quick points of application and then we'll wrap up. Number four, and let's, let's soak this in some gospel. If you're unmarried or married, as all of us are in this room, this applies to everybody, whether married or unmarried, and we've sinned sexually and that's everybody in this room, 
We've all sinned sexually in some ways, except for maybe the very youngest of us. I want you to know, if you're committed by God's grace right now as an unmarried or married person who has a past of sexual sin, and you're fighting against that sin and desiring to walk in holiness, I want you to know that you're a child of God who is loved by God, forgiven by God, justified, and headed for heaven. Okay? There is forgiveness. There is rich, unfathomable forgiveness. And there is no scarlet letter in the kingdom. Zero. The Bible is not saying that those who struggle for purity and are committed to fighting against sexual sin are going to hell. Those who struggle with any manner of sexual sin, either same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction, are not in danger of eternal damnation provided they are fighting it, provided they are pursuing the Lord, striving to repent, striving to walk in holiness, striving to confess their sin 70 times 7 to a faithful advocate who will go on forgiving and cleansing every single moment of their lives. What the Bible is referring to is unrepentant negligence in this area, not repentant fighting. So I know we have sensitive consciences in the room that will hear a sermon like this and feel just so filthy. And even if their past is marked with relative purity, they still feel filthy and dirty. And, I, and even if your past or present is marked by great sin, Jesus is a sufficient Savior. John 8, the prostitute comes to him. The filthiest woman in the world. John, John, woman at the well, the woman who's been married four or five times. Jesus forgives them, loves them, receives them into the kingdom and then sends them back and says, go and sin no more. Be changed. He doesn't invite them to come and say, okay, once you get your life together. No, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's our Savior. He's not looking for you to get your act together. He's looking for you to collapse on him in faith and dependence and seeking him for forgiveness and cleansing. And he is ready and eager to do it. It is not going to make Jesus upset that you come to him with your sexual brokenness and plead with him to forgive you. He died for all of that. And his blood is more than sufficient. And he's not begrudging in his forgiveness either. He is lavish and generous with no guilt left over and no scarlet letter to wear. Number five, if you're married or unmarried, pursue God's vision. Recommit to pursuing God's vision for human sexuality that's expressed in these verses. They are your path to eternal and earthly joy. The seriousness with which the Bible treats sexuality is not intended to make you recoil, thinking that God must hate you or he's disgusted or he's ashamed of you or he's done with you. That's not true. These words are not meant to drive you away from God. They're meant to drive you to him. He welcomes sinners, sexual sinners, and our church does as well. The reason why God is grieved by sexual sin is because he loves his kids. Because he loves his children. No one wants your sexual satisfaction more than God. God knows what is best for you, and his word is designed not to stunt your pleasure but to intensify it in life-giving, soul-saving, and eternity-enjoying ways. Praise God for his strong words to us, but also the hope he offers to us in the gospel. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Worship team, please come. Father, we are grateful to you for giving us strong warnings in the Bible, which are always laced with your grace and your love and your compassion.
They are never scolding. They are never um, you getting irritated with us. They are always a reflection of your compassionate heart as a father who desires to say to his kids, don't run in front of that truck. Stop. Don't run in front of that truck. And Lord, if there are any who are in this congregation right now who are either in front of that truck or running toward that truck or have been blasted by that truck, we pray that they would run to Jesus Christ who is eager to cleanse and eager to forgive and eager to wash and eager to restore. Lord Jesus, thank you that for so many of us, so many of us whose paths are marked by so much sin, not even necessarily just sexual sin, but just so much sin and wickedness, Lord, that would cause all of us to blush and shame and run out of here if it were known. Lord, you are a gracious and mighty Savior. And you came to save and to cleanse and to restore us and to leave no scarlet letter and to to cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea to separate us from them as far as the east is from the west. Thank you that those who hope in the Lord will never be put to shame. And may we be that kind of community that doesn't shame others or gasp in horror that sin is present, but rather lean in and be redemptive and encouraging and point others to Christ. Thank you for being such an all-sufficient, powerful Savior. We worship you now. Amen. Let's stand together.